Obviously, a huge reason why I'm doing this podcast is for the love of music. I really like music. I listen to it a lot. I read and write about it a lot. I see it being performed a lot. And it's always been a part of my life. Although I'm lacking in the playing it a lot aspect. What's, what's that about in the mix? Who, who cursed me with being shitty at playing music? It's honestly not fair, but not my destiny, I guess. Someone's got to write about it, you know? Besides the point. What I'm trying to say is that I consume a lot of music, and I have since a young age. I always grew up listening to what my parents played, especially my dad, which fortunately for me consisted of a lot of the Smiths, New Order, Pearl Jam, Red Hot Chili Peppers, all that jazz, lots of rock and alternative, you know? That was really the foundation for my music taste, and I still predominantly listen to those bands, but when I grew a little bit older and started discovering bands and artists on my own, it was an amazing feeling. I would go on Spotify and just dig myself a little hole and spend hours in there building playlists, and I felt so cool showing my friends all the new songs I stumbled upon. In high school, one artist that I loved in particular, and still do, is Snail Mill. Something about Lindsay Jordan's rawness yet cool nonchalance that she displays at the same time was so captivating to me. Her songs helped me through breakups, soundtrack memories of summers with friends, and opened me up to even more strong female vocalists in the genre to look up to, such as Soccer Mommy and Boy Genius. So, flip forward to today, of course, I when I saw the lineup, including acts like Soccer Mommy and Mannequin Pussy for Jordan's Valentine's Fest this year, I was pained that I couldn't fly my ass out to Maryland and go. But you bet your ass I watched the sick-ass performance of Jordan and Sophia Allison of Soccer Mommy perform Avril Lavigne's I'm With You. And holy shit, that woke something up in me and I immediately set on what I wanted to talk about for this very episode. So, of course, it wouldn't be a soundscape episode without talking about my youth because this is a Gen Z podcast and I was a youngin in the early 2000s before I fell in love with the powerful women of Snail Mill and Soccer Mommy. Before they became role models to me, Little Tony had a different female artist to look up to. I'm Tony Elton, this is Soundscape, Songs That Define Gen Z, and this episode is especially kick-ass because we're talking about a song from 2002, the year of my birth. Thank you, thank you, too Anyways, you guessed it. The song we're talking about today is Avril Lavigne's Skater Boy, so let's do it, then see you later, boy. That won't be my last of that, so get ready. Okie doke. Let's set the scene, shall we? I, always, I feel like I always say that, but you know, it's good. It's good to set the scene. I grew up with brothers and an extremely tomboy sister who had a huge impact on me. As a youngin, I loved dressing up as a princess and painting nails and whatever activities we've deemed feminine in our society. It's arbitrary, but whatever. But I also enjoyed my fair share of playing skate and having lightsaber fights with the boys. I've always been in touch with both my feminine and masculine qualities. An example of that I had from a young age Aside from my sister, who started vans, basketball, shorts, and backwards famous hats every day of her teenage years, was, yes, the one and only Avril Lavigne. When I first saw her on MTV in her cons, baggy jeans, tie-in, tight t-shirt combo, and a backwards hat and smudgy eyeshadow that, reflecting now, looks eerily similar to my sister's at the time, I swear there's actually a picture of my sister with a backwards flat bill cap. Cap? Hat? <laughs> cap? What? I've never called that. A backwards flat bill hat straightened you know like fucking straight ironed burnt to a crisp blonde hair and smudgy eyeshadow that looks just like avril lavigne there's something similar too about their teeth okay that's getting like way too much information but they actually look a lot alike from that time so i was struck by that but not only that and how similar she looks to my sister 
but how she appeared so feminine and also so boyish. I decided after watching the Skater Boy video, which was probably like eight years after it actually came out, but whatever, that I wanted to learn how to skate and wear baggy clothes. And I ended up looking kind of like a mix between my sister and Avril Lavigne and simultaneously Jesse Pinkman and a third grade boy. So, okay, my style hasn't changed that much since then, but let's, let's not talk about that, okay? The moral of the story is that Avril Lavigne influenced 2000s style so much had a huge impact on kids like me that eventually grew into their androgynous style and punk taste. So alas, let us begin the actual informational part of this podcast. All right, you know what it is. Avril Lavigne was born September 27th, 1984 in Belleville, Ontario. People, 1984, people born in the 80s? I don't know why that's so fascinating to me. It's almost like people, like, like kids born like nowadays, like after 2015, which like, I have a brother that's five, so he was born after 2015, but it just doesn't seem real to me. Maybe that's small-minded. Maybe that's self-centered. I don't know, whatever. Her parents realized her vocal ability at age two when she sang Jesus Loves Me on the Way Home from Church, similar to Spears. If you haven't listened to the first episode, check it out. Her parents were staunchly Christian, and many of the songs that she sang growing up were in church, but her parents really supported her musically by her microphone, drum kit, keyboard, and several guitars growing up. They basically transformed their basement into a studio for her, so that's pretty lit. In a Rolling Stones cover article by Jenny Eliscu from 2003, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, Little Miss, Little Miss, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, didn't know you'd get some spin doctors this morning. I didn't, I didn't either. Actually, I did, but didn't think I'd be singing it. I'm sorry. I'll be referencing this article a lot throughout. Talks about how Levine always knew she would be a famous performer growing up. She would always pretend to play to a screaming crowd from her bed as a young kid, but she was a fairly normal kid going to church every Sunday, playing hockey in high school, and performing at country fairs in her hometown. I like how I give it a country accent. She's literally Canadian. That's okay. Anyways, at a fairly young age, which I failed to note, it seems, sorry, but it was, I know for a fact, younger than the age of 16. Levine won a radio contest and got to perform with Shania Twain in Ottawa for an audience of 20,000 people. It's pretty crazy. In 1999, she was discovered by her first manager, Cliff Fabry. Cliff Fabry, yes. While singing country covers, and nonetheless, country, there's something that's so random. I don't know about Canadian culture. I don't, I don't know, whatever. Shania Twain is Canadian, right? That's so interesting to me. Okay. Country covers at a bookstore on, on Ontario, so. Fabry ends up sending a video of Levine singing karaoke to industry prospects, one being New York songwriter and producer Peter Zizzo, who wrote songs for Celine Dion and Jennifer Lopez. And he saw that video and he said, bring that girl to me in New York ASAP, stat, right now. So Levine moves to New York with her brother and gets a deal with Arista Records in 2000 at the age of 16. That's so crazy. It's, there's so many similarities between her and Britney Spears, just like in different genres, you know? It's pretty crazy. So although Levine had a team assigned to her to work on the writing of songs that were more marketable, you know, really helping curate her sound and image to a general audience, her edgy skater girl style wasn't necessarily a product of just trying to sell her image. Levine found that she fit in with the skater clique at school, but, you know, when she got involved in the industry, that really separated her from her peers. So after signing to Arista, she leaves school to focus on music, which her family supports her in, and she just kind of gets the ball rolling. So two years later, she releases her first album, Let Go, in June of 2002. Hell yeah, which reached, hold on, this is gonna be a lot. Number two on Billboard's 200 albums chart, 
and then was certified four times platinum, making her the best-selling female artist of 2002. <gasps> I believe it, man. That's fucking insane. She really had a chokehold on everyone and really was dominating that market. It's fucking crazy. We'll get more into that later. And this does become a theme of her just like making all the fucking charts. So get ready for that. This album had bangers like Complicated, Skater Boy, and I'm With You. Complicated charted as number two in the US and number one in Australia as Skater Boy and I'm With You reached top 10. So if that's not proof that these were bangers, I don't know what it is. Just a year later, 2003, she appears on the cover of Rolling Stone, which I already mentioned. So since I've brought this article up twice now, let me get into some few highlights from it before we keep on rolling with her career and do some, do some fucking digging into that. At the time of the article's release, Let Go is at 4 million in sales and she's gearing up for a tour. They talk about it and all this shit, whatever. They talk about, they even talk about like how she's kind of like a party girl once she's in like um, Europe or like the drinking age. Cause she's only like, what, 16, 17? The drinking age is lower. So she's doing like body shots at the bar and all this stuff, but she, it's so contradictory too, because she's talking about how, like, she's grateful for her Christian upbringing because she doesn't, it taught her to, like, not dress promiscuously and, like, not cuss in her songs. That was a huge thing. She was like, I don't see the need. I mean, she, when she got a little older, I think she started cussing, but, like, off this album, she, she's 16. She was like, my parents wouldn't want me to do that, so I don't. Anyways, the article highlights a lot about Levine's upbringing, like I said, and how she's just kind of grateful for, you know, being raised in a Christian household because it taught her a lot of values but also how she didn't really listen to a whole lot of popular music, let alone punk music as a kid. It says, and I quote, Levine never listened to much music until she hit puberty. And even then it was most, mostly country divas such as Shania Twain or mainstream rock bands like the Goo Goo Dolls and Matchbox 20, which is one reason she had never seen David Bowie's name when it came time to read it off a list of nominees at a Gram Grammy press conference in Jan January. So I think that's kind of cute. Like, she's out here doing this shit. She's blowing up the scene and she doesn't even know who Bowie is. It, you know, she's doing, she's really talented, but it, you know, it does appear that she's kind of having some help from a team leveraging her vocal abilities to a mainstream platform. So with that being said, her label hires, hired The Matrix, an American British songwriting and production team consisting of Lauren Christie, Scott Spock, and Graham Edwards to help with the songwriting on Let Go. Levine apparently didn't want a pop sound, but she knew that she needed one to appeal to a large audience as just from like what she said in that article and of course to appease her label um but she said she had the most input on songs like losing grip and unwanted but the label didn't want that rougher sound throughout so that's when the matrix stepped in the team worked on the whole album with her but the details get a little twisty turny she claims that her input is the biggest on all the songwriting and that she helped with every single song but her team on the other hand says that levine had a really small role in writing the biggest hits on the album but who knows, you know, we weren't there, we can't say. So moving on. So in 2004, her second album, Under My Skin, was released and made charts as number one in Australia, Canada, Japan, UK, and the US. Her third album, The Best Damn Thing, was released in 2007. And honestly, as okay, wait, we all know that album's good. We all fucking know. That album was honestly more influential to me than Skater Boy was. I think I probably heard Girlfriend before I heard Skater Boy. And the Girlfriend remix with Little Mama, Bruh, it's too good. It's the most 2000s thing I've ever heard. Beth, the Best Damn Thing was released in 2007. Again, made the Billboard's Top 200 and Girlfriend. Like I said, love that fucking shit. Made the Billboard Hot 100 and peaked as number one in various other countries. So that, you know, we all know that was good. It still holds up. I listened to that like this morning and it was fucking banging. And not to mention it was the most downloaded track in 2007. 
I definitely know that I contributed to that unless we un- illegally downloaded it, which we did a lot. But I remember that song and lip gloss. I remember I would put in my little headphones and my like iPod Nano that my sister, it was little green iPod Nano that my sister would download songs onto. And I would just, I couldn't leave, like move, go far from my house. I was like, I was five. I was literally five when that song came out, but I loved it. And I remember watching the music video. So I'd ask my sister to download it onto my little iPod Nano and I'd plug in my little headphones and I would walk up and down the side rock from my house to my friend Omar's house, which was at the end of the street. And I'd walk up there and then back just listening to those two songs on repeat. repeat. Yep. Classic. Like, those are so good. Like, kudos to me as a little kid for having amazing taste. Anyways, let's speed around the rest of her career, baby. Her fourth album, Goodbye Lullaby, was released in 2011, sold a lot of copies and went gold, but wasn't as profitable as the other releases. That album, I didn't I didn't think I remembered much from it, but the song, What the Hell, do you remember that song? I played some Avril Lavigne this morning, I was like, shit, I remember this song. I thought this was like, not a very important album, but like, I remember hearing that song all the time. So she was still kicking out the jams. <laughs> Kick out the jams, MC5. She was still, <laughs> she was still releasing good songs in 2011. Maybe not as good as Girlfriend and Skater Boy, but you know, as careers go on, you can't always have the best tracks. So her self-titled album with singles like Here's Never Growing Up and Rock and Roll, which features her Nickelback husband, what? <laughs> Chad Kroger. That's who she was married to. Okay. I don't know. She was married to the Nickelback guy. And someone put, explain that. How did they meet? Where did they meet? Like, I know they're both musicians, but that's like crazy for real. They just like meet at a party and like, and like the, what? I feel like he's so much older than her. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, Oh, I'm looking at pictures of them right now. It's so weird. He also looks AI generated. I don't know if that's just me, but. What? He literally doesn't look real. All right. Someone find a a subreddit about chat kroger not being real because i don't believe it prove it to me anyways there's another less amazing rolling stone article i read that interviews her about this album from 2013 called avril living on growing up and staying young by saum oh i'm gonna butcher this i'm so sorry saum saumya krishna mathuri it's a q a style so it's like not a lot of meat there but i wouldn't say like super noteworthy it's not like horrible but it basically talks about Levine evolving as an artist along with her skater image that's associated with her. So in response to one of the questions, um, the reporter asked her, um, you're still viewed as, a, as the eternally young boy bashing skater girl. How do you reconcile that with your married adult life? Because at this time, she just recently married Nickelback guy, Kroger. Kroger? Sorry, I'm just realizing that that's also the King Supers brand. No way he's real. Like, no way he's real. He's named after like a generic brand of cereal okay i'm sorry she responds nothing's that calculated i kind of don't worry about what i'm making music for i kind of just make it for myself i like having strong messages in the songs for the fans i love writing music that's anthemic and has a powerful message i also love to create music with a deep meaning that can reach people emotionally on another level i have both sides to me so i think she's saying like she just writes likes to write fun powerful songs that relate to her audience whatever that is I feel like her image hasn't changed a whole lot really since like the skater girl image. She's just like an adult now, you know, but that's not, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but we'll get into that later. 
Her sixth album was released in 2019 and reached top 10 in the US, Canada, Italy, Japan, and a few other countries. On the album, she touches a bit on her struggle with Lyme disease, and she toured on that album in late 2019, but it got postponed to 2022 due to COVID. Oh, and that album was called Head Above Water. I don't know why I didn't note that, but yeah, that was that album. Um, and that's not the end of it. In 2021, Levine releases a song with Maud's son, who I guess she, I don't know if she's married to him now, but they're definitely a thing. And is featured in the song Grow off of Willow Smith's 2021 album, Lately I Feel Everything. Uh, here we go. She signs to Travis Barker's label, DTA Records, in 2021 and announces her seventh album, Love Sucks, which was released in January of last year. And yet again, how the hell does she does it? It's charted on the Billboard 200 chart. So back to fairly recently. In August of last year, she released a song with MGK. Then in October, she released a single with Youngblood. Why? I'm, I'm not going to comment on, on it too much until maybe, maybe here in a sec. But let's wrap it up with she's currently working on her eighth album. Jeez, girl, pump the brakes. That's honestly a lot of albums and a lot of time. And I mean, kudos to her. She's really doing the most. So now that I'm winded going through her career, let me comment on Travis Barker. Respectfully. I I love the man. I respect him. I truly do. I love Blink-182. I'm sure Avril Lavigne did too and still does. And she probably had some influences pulled from them. You know, I feel like every pop punk artist does. Blink-182 is sick. I love them. Don't fucking care what anyone says. And of course, I love the transplants as well. Fucking Tim Armstrong. Ah, are you kidding? I love Tim Armstrong. Of course. Transplants is amazing. I'm a double Barger supporter. That's all I'm saying. But like, can we, let's, let's keep it at that. Shall we? Like, Blink-182, great. Transplants, great. I'd be totally chill if he was just in there producing whatever. But I don't understand why he has to like go in there and infiltrate into the music, current music with this push of pop punk with like willow and mgk that's pretty much just him like living his like glory days through these new artists like what it, it was like fun and silly with mgk and, and then it went to willow and then avril lavigne signed to him i don't know it's too much i'm not saying like tickets to my downfall or love sucks are, are bad albums they're like actually kind of good and they're fun but they it, they just sound like early 2000s pop punk and like, can we just leave that to the 2000s, please? Like it kind of loses its novelty for me. You know, I'm not going and banging to these songs. I'd rather just listen to like Avril Lavigne and like Paramore and Fall Out Boy. Okay, can we just keep it at that and like not have MTK in here? Sorry, I just can't deal with it. Anyways, that's the entirety of her career and all my unnecessary and unwarranted commentary on Travis Barker. So let's get into the fun stuff. Not that the rest of that wasn't fun, you know? It's all fun here, it's all fun. But let's talk Skater Boy, her image, her impact, all that good shit. So, early 2000s skater style. It was alive and well, let me tell you. Let me tell you, even though I was like five. I saw it firsthand. I'm like, I've told you about my sister. I told you what she wears. You know, you got those Osiris shoes. You got the baggy cargo pants. You got the big old jeans. The t-shirt and long sleeve combo. I'll still be rocking that. I love that combo. I need to get more long sleeves. Everyone was walking around looking like the boys from Malcolm in the Middle. And I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I'm saying that with the utmost respect. Like I said, you guys know how I dress. So, you know, it's, it's cool. I was exposed to all of that as a kid, even though none of my siblings were really all that good at skating. And, you know, I'm pretty shit at it too. But 
don't know. My sister, like I said, she liked Avril Lavigne. She per- basically looked like her, and, like, a lot of her fashion sense was based off of that, of her and, like, Mac Miller and his, like, frat boy era. I feel like a big part of that, you know, like I said, was especially my sister watching the Avril Lavigne videos and taking inspo growing up, which just all trickled down to me. You know, I was just a byproduct of the older people around me, which aren't we all. That's how we, that's the basis of childhood development. All right. From a far out magazine titled How Avril Lavigne Shaped a Generation by Jamie Kahn says, quite literally, Avril's stumble, Avril's tumble upwards to fame was not, was as authentic as it gets. She was a tomboy who performed her songs at count at county fairs and played for the boys hockey team but when she won a singing competition and landed her record deal it was a combination of image timing and talent that sparked that bleeding subculture of girl pop punk rock that basically sums up everything that i said in this episode in like what two one sentence one really long sentence that's okay we're here for the the details and the fun commentary for me so yeah so you're welcome for that travis barker discourse okay But for real, for a lot of young girls, she was an introduction to pop punk and punk in general, especially since skating and the music associated with it was typically typically an all boys club and kind of still is. So like Spears in the pop scene, she paved the way for female fronted bands and artists in the pop punk scene in the early 2000s, such as Paramore and Hey Monday. Obviously, Avril wasn't the first woman in the punk scene. You know, go read Please Kill Me or something or hell, maybe I'll even start a history of punk podcast, but that's a big undertaking, so maybe not. But she did bring the subculture to regular girls who may not have heard punk music before, just like Avril Lavigne when she started. That's pretty tight. And thinking about it, like I said, I wouldn't necessarily say that she opened up that genre for me. Like, I credit a lot of that to my dad and sister, since I just listened to what they listened and what music videos they decided to tune into on MTV that day. But it planted the seed in my head of what kind of sound I liked and the image I gravitated towards. So when I started my own music discovery, I was drawn to those artists like Snail Mill and even Bully and Starcrawler. Levine really dominated that genre at the time and shaped an entire generation with her image and amazing marketability, I will say. So even though I've had a hard time with the huge pop-punk resurgence that's happening right now, go back a few minutes if you didn't listen to me talk about Travis Barker. I don't know why I'm so heated about this. I don't know why I'm still bringing it up. Anyways, it shows that the genre is still in people's hearts and there's an affinity for the early 2000s pop-punk sound and image. And can you really blend them? I can, a little bit. But still, you know. Pop punk is really the anthem for teen angst and growing up, and it always has been, starting with Blink-182 and Symbol Plan, and I think that's why Avril Lavigne's music really imprinted on Gen Z. It's definitive to our years of growing up, or never growing up, whatever Avril Lavigne said. So that's it, folks. What more can I say? That's the last quote, I swear. You're relieved of your misery for this week. So I hope you learned a little something about Avril Lavigne and Skater Boy and how that song and... The artist really imprinted on the 2000s from skater culture to the pop punk genre. And I hope you got to reconnect with your youth angst. I'm just a kid. Life is a nightmare vibes. All right, that's actually the last lyric. I'm done. I'm done for now. I'm done. So join me next week, next Friday, to look back on 2003, the next year in the series, as we get ready to lose ourselves in the music, the moment. You want it. You better never let go. Oh my God, I'm quoting song lyrics again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's a disease. An illness. I'm also going delusional. So I need to get off this mic right now. I'll see you then.
This podcast was written and produced by me, Tony Elton. Music by Sam Shapiro. Special thanks to Carlos Jimenez and the University of Denver's Media, Film, and Journalism Department.